Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Nick Corbushley. Nick Corbushley is a writer, journalist, teacher and translator. He's author of Scanned, why vaccine passports and digital IDs will mean the end of privacy and personal freedom. Now time for comments. Now time for your comments on the Yanis Varoufakis episode. TDR says, I love his take on the fashionable versus unfashionable victims. Yeah, that was good, that, when he said that uh, Ukraine victims, certainly worthy of attention, protection, and of precious sacred life, could be described as fashionable victims. But what about people in Yemen? We should have the same coverage and solidarity with all people who have had their homelands invaded. That was a good point Yanis Varoufakis made. Jojo says, we need more Yanises in politics. I would vote for someone like him and his party. Just refreshing to see someone informed, intelligent and has optimism for citizens. Lee says, Yanis manages to articulate a complex situation very clearly and effectively. He sums up our global bias perfectly. Also, I'm on tour at the moment. If you want to come and see me on tour, go to russellbrand.com for dates. You can see me in Carlisle, Newcastle. I'm all over the place. Plymouth, Bristol, Glasgow, Blackpool. Come see me live. And if you're not a member of my mailing list yet, have a little click at russellbrand.com and you'll learn exactly what I'm up to, where I'm going in a weekly bulletin that you'll just love. Also, check out my YouTube channel for all my latest stuff. Listen to shout outs. Gina Mincino, I felt compelled to write because I found your recent podcast, number 220, with Dr. Joe Dispenza, so important and revelatory. I actually listened to it twice in a row. I've always subscribed to the mind-body connection. Dr. Dispenza's findings are great. I think it's fabulous. Yeah, he's one of them people that a lot of folk would dismiss as a quack and a loon, but, you know, it seems to me that there is an invisible intelligence that underscores biochemical reality. Otherwise, how's the body healing itself and running itself? Fantastic episode. You should all have a little listen to that. Now, Nick Corbishley is a fantastic contributor I really enjoyed our conversation he's someone that I'm looking forward to working with more he's understanding of the WEF of global politics of what would seem in the wrong hands like conspiratorial tomfoolery and skullduggery in Nick Corbushley's hands which by which I mean he's done the research he's joined the dots sound sometimes alarming sometimes concerning but most of all, quite valid. You're going to hear stuff that's going to blow your mind about ideas that have been introduced, you know, documents you can just click on. Like, you know, in 2016, there was this document saying this was the stated agenda. Look at the wording. Now look at what's happening. Look at these people that run these countries and work for these organisations. See how they were meeting at this point. I mean, it's just fascinating. You'll love it. Anyway, remember, come see me on tour if you can, russellbrand.com. It's a fantastic experience. I do meditation there. If you're not meditating already using Above the Noise, you come and meditate live with me on my tour there's a link in the description or go to russellbrand.com to get dates and get your tickets now it's time to listen to Under the Skin with Nick Corbishley trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route yes that's, that's, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Nick, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. It's such a joy to have you with us. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Nick, you've written this book, Scanned, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom. If you watch my YouTube channel, then you'll know these are the kind of subjects that interest me, not with any particular uh, axe to grind with regard to medical matters, but more the increase in centralised technocratic authority. And it seems to me that this is the uh, your area of interest could you tell us about what some of the implications of um you know tech enabled digital id and social credits and biometric um tra- tracking i'm guessing you can because this is the subject of your book but can you talk to us <laughs> about sort of like outline some of the territory that you're operating in in this book mate okay yeah i mean the the scope of application is is so broad and uh, it's going to be hard to cover it in in this space of time we have t- together. But I mean, I'll try to to at least narrow down the most important aspects. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've already seen we've already seen how vaccine passports are have massively transformed uh, many of the societies where they've been applied most rigorously. So I mean, like this is not the case in the UK. And it's not the case in the country I live in, Spain, because we've had kind of like very brief periods of, um, of, of where it's been applied. But if you look at a country like Italy, you look at a country like France, you look at a country like Austria, um, you are seeing countries, you are seeing systems being changed. You are seeing um, power being concentrated and shifted upwards. And these vaccine passports are allowing levels of segregation, discrimination that were utterly unthinkable two or three years ago. And unfortunately, are largely tolerated by by many of the people in, in, in these populations. So it's 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 creating a system not just that is allowing um, very close tracking of people's actions and people's behaviours and people's movements, but it's creating a system of forced compliance where you have to do what the government asks of you to be able to do things that everybody should have a right to do, such as, say, go to the bar go to a restaurant, um, such as maybe go to the hospital when you're not feeling well, such as um, meeting your friends in certain, in certain um, environments. I mean, like, it's, it's something that the, the, the consequences of not doing what the government says, which in this case is, um, is taking a vaccine, can even extend to losing your job. It can extend to losing your livelihood. Um, in Italy, that, that has been the case in Italy for the last three or so months, uh, or no, the last four months, you've got um, a situation in Italy where you cannot even hop on a bus or hop on a, on a metro and go across town to, to your workplace or to visit friends. I mean, the, the ability to pressure people to take certain actions changes enormously when you have these kind of digital um, identity systems, which is exactly what vaccine passport is. Um, so it, it's completely and utterly game-changing. 
So, of course, these measures were introduced, whether we're talking, you know, mandates and the introduction of a means of uh, uh, surveilling those mandates and regulating these behaviours were all introduced as a, at least the explicit public narrative is in order to prevent the contagion spreading, in order to prevent excessive pressure on health services. So what, and, and, and I know that's not the particular area of your interest and nor is it the particular interest of, uh, of mine, but if that, if it was in order and indeed is in order to prevent a sort of a health crisis in, in, in various ways, then would we see these measures being revoked when the crisis has been managed or and and are we seeing that are these measures being rescinded what is it that makes you so concerned and why is it that you're not just saying well they were doing this because they had to because there's health crisis so there it is you know what what why are you countering the accepted wisdom i suppose is what i'm saying Okay, we've got about how many questions? There's like three questions in one there, isn't there? I know, and that's so, not very many because um, normally I do like a 10-minute thing and it's not even a question. Sometimes, Nick, I just talk for 10 minutes <laughs> and then I stop talking when I've run out of stuff to say and then I leave the guest in the terrifying position of having to summon up some sort of response <laughs> from their life experience. But what I suppose I'm sort of saying broadly here is well, that our understanding is that these measures were necessary to control a medical emergency. Does that therefore mean that they would be rescinded at the point that that medical emergency was under control and why is it that you are if not querying the nature of the pandemic which i know is, is it still remains a sort of a tricky subject why is it that you're concerned what could have been done differently what is okay. your sort of argument i guess okay um number one they're definitely being rescinded to a certain extent um so we are seeing uh, governments around the world beginning to take steps back with the vaccine passport legislation. England is like leading the way in this area. And this week they, they removed all um, domestic application of the vaccine passport system, which is, which is welcoming. Um, I'm very happy with that. And I think we all should be happy with that. Um, in other countries, you're seeing like Wales, um, Scotland, um, other countries on the European mainland. So that they're, they're, they're basically saying we are going to make it voluntary. So we're allowing organizations and venues to, to apply these um, vaccine passports, depending on uh, whatever they want to do, it's up to their choice. I think that what people don't realize is that even in England, the vaccine passport still has a role to play because the moment you want to travel outside um, British borders, the moment you want to cross the channel, go to France, Spain, wherever, you will need your vaccine passport to be able to do that. Um, and the European Union is, is desperately keen to extend the so-called Green Pass for another year so, I mean, that will push it to around about April, May 2023, as long as it's passed by the European Parliament. Um, so, I mean, I think that we are seeing a message, which is that, you know, restrictions in general are being, um, they're being rescinded. We're going back to normality. That is the message we're getting. And I think that there's only a partial element of truth to that. I think that... In reality, the vaccine passports 
are not going anywhere. They're kind of like being put in the background, but they are they are still going to be part of our lives. And more importantly, as countries are putting it in the background or putting on the back burner, they are beginning to push through with digital identity uh, legislation, which is going to be far more sweeping, far more encompassing of our lives than even vaccine passports were. So it's in the UK, the British government is doing that. In Canada, you've got um, territories in Canada like Ontario, Alberta that have like, you know, been in the headlines recently saying that they are um, abandoning vaccine passports while at the same time they are pushing, you know, they're, they're beginning to start these digital identity programs. So it's it's like we are being misled to be complacent again. We are being misled to not worry. Everything is fine. Um, so, so I would say this is when we probably need to be most vigilant. So like the vaccine passports, in a sense, is an entry point to a new acceptance of a new social norm of digital IDs. Is there anywhere that digital IDs are already being implemented? Is there already sort of like a case study? Is there somewhere we can look at and say, oh, well, this is what happens when there's digital IDs? Um, I mean, they're being kind of pushed out in many, many different countries. So they are being... I think at the moment we're kind of at pilot scheme stage. So the European Union is is developing uh, an incredibly ambitious digital ID system. You've got, um, I think that in the US, you've got the digital driving license they're trying to push forth. I mean, if you really want to see where this could be going, then probably China is the country that has gone further than anyone with this sort of system. Um, and there it's still kind of like in pilots, they, um, it's, it's in pilot schemes, but it's in pilot schemes in dozens of cities and territories around, around, the, around the country. And we are seeing how that is beginning to, to function. You even had like in the newspapers in, in the UK, a few reports from journalists kind of recoiling at the the reality of you know having to be in China and having to use their mobile phone to to access literally everything and the irony is, is they're kind of like you know recoiling from this system being placed in China while not really reporting on what is happening in in the UK and and other parts of the western world where we are definitely following a similar path so do you suppose that i'm not really interested in or certainly not laying out conspiratorial terrain for you and I to walk upon but does it seem that in order to create a Chinese type model or at least the model that is being piloted in as you've said in various Chinese territories you have to create conditions that facilitate that for example the vaccine passports are legitimized by the uh, accepted desire to prevent the spread of a contagion and reduce deaths and control coronavirus that becomes a narrative that a sufficient number of people are satisfied with and then that technology is introduced. And as with sort of previous incarnations of civil liberty infringing legislation, such as the uh, introduction of um, various means of surveillance that came about after you know 9-11, the, the measures are never revoked. Uh, and 
I, so I suppose that's what is happening, huh? Create the conditions that require this legislation, then introduce the legislation, and sort of almost in a kind of a, a, a respiratory like wave, like an inhalation and an exhalation. We introduce these measures, then we rescind them, then we introduce further me measures. It seems like we've been slowly um, massaged into a kind of in, into a kind of compliance with a totally new forms of control. Yeah, I think that that is that is very true. Um, I think that it's like we've been through. You could argue that the authorities have taken like ten giant steps over the last year, year and a half, and then they've taken a couple of baby steps backwards. They have um, implemented a system that that is very much a digital identity system. It's just quite narrowly focused for the moment. At the same time, I think where they will be very happy is that most people seem to have accepted that. And it's kind of like there's been a conditioning, a normalization of the idea of getting out your mobile phone and flashing it and using, showing your identity in one form or another to be able to access the most basic um, services, the most basic things to, to get into just about any venue. And, and that sort of normalization is possibly the most um, the most worrying aspect of what has happened. So yeah, it's it's about putting the infrastructure in place, and it's interesting that right now, just as they're kind of like pulling back, they're also pushing forward with the kind of digital identity systems in in places like Europe, in places like the UK, in places like Canada, and and they're doing it by stealth. So I mean, it's not it's not being done overtly. We're not getting articles in the newspapers talking about what digital identities should mean, which is interesting considering in the UK you had massive debates going, you know, back to Tony Blair's government when it wanted to push through the the um, the ID system. Uh, you had debates on on Newsnight. You had debates in very important arenas and. And that's not happening here. We're not What's changed? Why is that not happening? What's happened, Nick? <sighs> it's a good question. Um, I mean, like you said, maybe then, back then, people were a bit more concerned about their rights. They were a bit more concerned about their liberties. Um, uh, I think that, you know, then it was kind of like on the cusp of the Iraq war and just after the Iraqi war. And... I think that, you know, people were maybe a little bit more suspicious of government power. People were a bit more, I don't know, it's, 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 a, hard, it's a hard question to answer. How, how have people changed in the last 10, 15 years? Um, and how have government changed? I think people are more afraid today. We've been through kind of like the biggest existential crisis of our times. And to a certain extent, fear has been used as a weapon to nudge us into certain um, actions and to um, accept certain things that would not have been acceptable in in a pre-COVID time. It seems very interesting that your response to that question is about fear because, uh, you know, I didn't anticipate that you would look at this uh, from an emotional perspective, but I suppose ultimately the fundamental energies that sort of constitute a cultural space or a sociological space are emotional 
or psychological. And if you control the emotions and the psyche, then obviously you can manipulate and introduce policy. And there's no question that there's been a great deal of fear. Of course, I suppose people that are supportive of these measures would say that the fear was necessary in order to create the conditions to um, you know control the the perceived problem. So let's say, for example, what just happened in Canada with the trucker protest, where it was widely reported as an anti-vaccination movement, even though some statistics suggest 90% of the truckers involved were vaccinated. And explicitly what they said was that they were against the mandating of vaccines rather than uh, vaccines themselves. Um, and where ultimately Trudeau's government evoked um, emergency powers in order to shut down the protests. And now that, you know, it's widely reported that the emergency powers have been revoked, it isn't so commonly appreciated that Canada have kept the ability to freeze bank accounts. You know, so this is another example of technology aligning with measures that are um, antithetical to civil liberty. Do you see that as a broad trend? And and also, Nick, what's your like point, man? Are you are you saying there is some global conspiracy stuff going down? Look, you can see it with your eyes. What is your sort of main point? What is your central idea that we are blindly yielding freedoms that will never be returned? Where, where is it that you're going with this? And how do you think it's happening on such a scale? And what does that suggest for you? Now, if you thought it was a lot when asked three questions, deal with that little <laughs> bundle of inquiry. I think my brain just imploded. Um, I mean, like, to the last question, um, yeah, I think that we are very much in danger of of kind of sleepwalking into a tech-enabled tyranny. I think that that is clearly a possibility. And there are clear interests in pushing this, in make, into making this a reality. Um, my, you know, in, my res in the research for my book, I, I was able to document um, an interest, or should I say, uh, concerted, concerted efforts to get digital identity um, to just about well to everybody on the planet within the next eight years. So I mean, by the year twenty thirty. So there's an organisation called ID twenty twenty that very few people know about. I'd never heard of it before I started researching for this book. Um, the ID2020 Alliance. It was set up in 2016 with seed money from Microsoft, Accenture, oh, PwC, Rockefeller Foundation, Cisco, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. So, I mean, like, it's, a, it's a very powerful organization. In 2016, it was set up. In 2016. When there was and no pandemic. It's, when there wasn't a pandemic. Um, and... And yeah, we're looking at organisations that you would you would you would expect to see pushing this sort of um, agenda, and their founding mission was to ensure that everybody on planet Earth had a digital ID by twenty thirty. Whether or not we want it, we will have it. I mean, this is kind of like the idea, and it's it's 
if you're worried about kind of a technocratic, um, concentrated, consolidated control of population, this is this is kind of a perfect example of that. And in 2019, they published an article where they were talking about how uh, inoculation presented a wonderful opportunity to roll out digital identity. And this was months and months before COVID-19 pandemic began. And they were, I mean, the way they wrote this article was really interesting. They were not talking about how digital identity will help help governments uh, manage public health care issues and, and crises. They were talking about how public health care issues and crises will allow them to roll out digital identity. And, and this is exactly what you what you see and if you look at what world economic forum they were talking about digital identity back in 2018 it was the main topic it was the top topic of the davos event that year and you know they produced an enormous report about how wonderful digital identity would be for the world and um, so i mean it's not something that is new it's something that has been kind of in um incubation for for quite some time and and my personal feeling, considering you've got an organization like ID2020 with this sort of like these sort of backers talking about the wonderful opportunities that inoculation vaccine certificates offer in terms of as a gateway to digital identity, then yeah, and that is in my view exactly what we're seeing. When they published that article in 2016, or at least they were founded, you say, ID2020, you said their backers include groups you know, such as Microsoft, that there was an article published where they sort of explained how uh, like visual identity would be, like, you know, like their, you know, their aims about visual identity. Who's that published for? You know, is it a is that an academic paper? Is it a business paper? Why would you put, you know, like, in a sort of like, obviously when I hear something like that, I feel like, oh man, that's shady. But like, I feel like, well, then why is there a sort of a, a paper trail like that that sort of could lead people to conclusions? I think that there's a paper trail with just about everything that is kind of happening right now. Um, it's it's the same with the World Economic Forum. Um, you have organisations that are proudly talking about how they they can and will take have great you know ex- exercise greater influence in the future i mean the, the the world economic forum's founder who um you've covered on a number of occasions klaus schwab i mean he talks openly about how we have to use this pandemic as a as an opportunity to radically restructure the world and to create this kind of like totally digitally connected um reality and and that is kind of like what we're seeing. That that is the name of the game. So it's, I think that we, in in answer to your question, who is it aimed at? I would say it's aimed at the sort of kind of like stakeholders that they would be writing for, the sort of people who might be connected with um, companies like Microsoft, companies like Accenture, companies like PwC, the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and the same with, I mean, like when, when the World Economic Forum published its report in 2018, Identity in a Digital World, a new chapter in the social contract, um, you know, they, it was very clearly a policy piece. They, they, they were kind of bragging about the fact that, you know, they, 
they covered this in their Davos event that year and they told everybody to go out and to, 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 to work on these digital identities and, and they were very happy to see that this was what, what was happening. So, I mean, I think that we live in this world where power has already drifted upwards or has been taken from us and has been pulled upwards. And to such an extent, I think that's part of the reason why so many of us are so apathetic, because we really have so little influence over um, how government functions. So we kind of like just switch off. And, and we've seen like an organization like the World Economic Forum is so important, is so powerful, it amasses together so many, um, so many of the largest companies on planet Earth. And yet we, we kind of treat it almost like in this comical way. If once a year you have the Davos event and, um, and you, you, they send a few journalists, they have a few interviews with some very important people. And at the end of it, it's like, well, back to normal. Well, we, we knew that they had a lot of influence in business and economics. It's kind of like in the name World Economic Forum. What we didn't know is how much influence they had in the political arena until I think right now we're beginning to see that seep out. And this is really important because when we vote for our MPs, we do so on the assumption that they are going to represent our interests or the interests of their constituents. And if they become, if they start having governmental roles, ministerial roles, we believe that they are representing the interests of the general population, of the general voters. What we don't realise is that they're going off to the World Economic Forum to get more or less their marching orders and enacting legislation on the kind of basis of what they are, what they are learning from the World Economic Forum, what they're being suggested should happen in the World Economic Forum. What evidence is there of that, Nick, that um, elected officials are responding to edicts and ideals that are being centrally um, designed and then distributed? What evidence is there? I mean, as you know, like I can nudge you along a bit because today we just did a video about the World Economic Forum and about how sort of Trudeau and uh, the current leader of uh, Argentina and maybe Macron have all sort of been sort of through some bizarre kind of youth program thing that the World Economic Forum ran where they're sort of like our young shining stars program and uh, and also obviously yeah digital IDs being a one example of a policy that's been cultivated and developed by the WEF and now is beginning, obviously, being discussed internationally and nationally. And even that famous and catchy slogan of the uh, of the WEF, you will own nothing and you'll be happy when you start to see um, hedge funds acquiring property in the United States, meaning that it was like a huge percentage of the population that previously would have been homeowners will now be renting homes you can see how it even in a sort of somewhat tedious and tangential uh, financial way that that little slogan is being brought to bear on the lives of ordinary americans so can you give me some better examples because you've written a book on it and uh and it's uh, it's your responsibility as the guest nick the canadian Cabinet, so the, the, the cabinet of um, the Trudeau government, 
according to um, Klaus Schwab, the founder and CEO of the World Economic Forum, has been penetrated, that is the lovely verb he used, um, by the World Economic Forum. And to such an extent that he boasted in a conference at the uh, Kennedy Harvard Kennedy School of Governance in 2017, that we we have at least half, maybe more than half of the cabinet are kind of like graduates of our young global leaders um, forum. And it's, it's an interesting club that, you know, they are organizing on an annual basis where they will invite 100, roughly 100 people to the uh, to the event, and these are people from virtually all walks of life, like all all sectors of importance, whether it's business, whether it's finance, whether it's economics, and and they are. We don't really know what they learn because there's not much sharing of information outside of this forum. Um, but that to me is very troubling. If you've got half of a cab of the cabinet of a government all having attended a training program of sorts in their formative years. So, I mean, it's not like they become government ministers and then they go off to the World Economic Forum. They show certain promise within their respective political parties and they're invited to, to attend this event and to, to take certain ideas, presumably, certain ways of thinking. I mean, the reason why this should concern us, not just the amount, the lack of disclosure, I think is the fact that the World Economic Forum brands itself as the international organization of public-private partnership. That's really important to understand what public-private partnership means and how, who benefits from public-private partnerships. So, I mean, over the last 40 or so years, we've seen a massive explosion of these so-called public-private partnerships where the kind of like the, the, you would have governments outsourcing work to private companies. The UK has been one of the most important kind of like testing grounds for public-private partnerships with its private finance initiative. And these tend to be wonderful ways of making public services very expensive. Um, there are wonderful ways of providing very cheap, easy profit-making monies for companies. So, I mean, an example in the UK with the Public Finance Initiative, which was set up with, under John Major and massively expanded under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, both of whom were uh, young global leaders, or they, they were themselves members of the... Um, the predecessor, the, you know, the, 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 the program that existed before the Young Global Leaders, which was, I think, what was it? Um, Global Leaders for Tomorrow, it was called, which began in 1993. Um, so they were massively in favour of public-private partnerships. This ended up leaving government with vast amounts of debt they're now struggling to pay. Um, so you have an example from The Guardian in 2019 where I think it was like for $13 billion of private sector 
funded investment, the NHS will end up paying something like £80 billion back. Sorry, it's £13 billion. So, you know, private sector invests £13 billion and the NHS trusts end up having to pay back £80 billion. It's a, it's a great way of generating funds for these companies that are the ultimate partners of the World Economic Forum. And it's a great way of kind of like weakening government finances. Um, so, so yeah, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, both graduates of one of the World Economic Forum programs. Um, who else? So you're looking at... Oh, no, I just like want to Angela say something Merkel. there. Oh, you, before we go yeah. back to that, Angela Merkel. But I just want to say, like, mm-hmm. that's mental, that it simultaneously weakens and disempowers the government. It transfers public money into private hands. It's like you can see that at the at global level, you have to create legislative pacts that take resources from ordinary people. So now it's not even as sinister as the previous commercial and corporate model where we're sort of hypnotised into dumb idiocy where we at least through volition hand over our money to, you know, to private companies selling us products that may be inferior and substandard and certainly won't do the job that they purport to do of making us happy. That's bad enough. Now it's they bypass the commercial process and create legislative relationships through private-public partnership that mean that you don't even have a choice. Your tax is going in that direction. In the example you gave to the tune of a like $67 billion profit, not only, and to add insult to injury upon injury, is it's the National Health Service, which is obviously the UK public-funded healthcare provider, which is being covertly privatised till presumably it's in the hands of like global or certainly American health insurance providers. So, yeah, that's a pretty good example, mate. Yeah, thanks. Then you was going to start bad-mouthing dear Angela Merkel, probably just on the basis of a, a an unflattering haircut. I mean, she was she was another one. She was, I think, she was in the same class as Tony Blair and um, Gordon Brown. And uh, she, so, I mean, like, you're talking about the head of state of Germany who was in control of Germany for something like sixteen, seventeen years. Um, her health minister was also a young global leader, or I can't remember his young global leader or global leader for tomorrow, but let's just say it's more or less the same thing. Macron was a young global leader. Um, so, I mean, like you've got there, you've got, you know, the heads of state or the, you know, the, the, the government leaders of the three largest economies in Europe. Um, and you can see this across the board. So you've got the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who's been very fond in pushing kind of like vaccine passports. You've got, I think it's the Prime Minister of Finland. So I mean, like when you look at it, it's, it really is quite staggering. In 2019, the World Economic Forum signed a strategic partnership with the United Nations, which at that time was kind of like dubbed by open democracy the website of open democracy as like the ultimate kind of like public private partnership it's like the privatization of the united nations so we have the world's most important supranational 
institution, more or less signing an agreement which which set the World Economic Forum on a similar level to to the United Nations. And and I do I like if people are beginning to wonder about this, they're thinking this is too crazy to be true. I mean, I I really do. Um, ask them, beg them to check this out. Go to the World Economic Forum website. Check out, check out the list of the partners. So, I mean, like, you, you will see the, the biggest corporations. We're talking about 500, 600 corporations and hedge funds and pension funds and banks and sovereign wealth funds. The, this, is where, this is where the world's money resides, and so if you look at A, it's actually they very conveniently set it up for people. So you've got like, it's set up alphabetically. So you've got A for Apple, you've got A for Amazon, you've got A for Alliance, you've got A for Accenture, you've got B for Blackst- BlackRock, you've got B for Blackstone, you've got B for Bayer, um, C for City. I mean, like every single one of the major too big to fail banks in the West are um, partners of the World Economic Forum. It's, it's weird how we've reached this stage and we're not questioning the amount of influence this organisation does wield. And aside, I have to say, this, aside from the political influence, I mean, like the, the political members of the Young Global Leadership Programme, the, the Young, Young Global Leadership Programme, you have the world's most important tech um, CEOs and founders. So you've got um, Bill Gates was in the same class as Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. You've got Mark Zuckerberg. You've got Larry Page of Google. You've got the founder of Wikipedia. Um, You've got Jack Ma. Um, So, I mean, you just keep looking at the list and say, this is a very cosy club. It is literally almost like the definition of George Carlin's. You know, it's just one big club. And they've created it and it's been going since the early 70s. And it is now almost on a par with the United Nations. When you have that concentration of power, Nick, do you, do you ever wonder what would be required to challenge it i mean in a sense democracy is the only thing that ever could the only thing that could ever challenge this surely is a sort of a populist uprising that brings to power political figures across nations that are outside of the existing political systems that will operate on behalf of the i suppose that's why populism gets such a bad name and immediately tagged up as far right and fascist and all of that because that's the only possible way of challenging such a consolidated mm-hmm. power base. Well, yeah, I mean, if you... What happened in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, um, the way he his reputation was more or less... Well, was dragged through the mud through... I mean, they tried everything until they managed to kind of find success with um, anti-Semitism the charges of anti-Semitism, but wherever you look, if you get uh, a genuine leader or a genuine party that really does represent some kind of challenge, then they will do anything to stop that. And, I mean, what they've done in Canada is, I think, is absolutely terrifying. When I saw the... I mean, Christian Freeland 
She's the economy minister of of um, Canada. She's the deputy prime minister of Canada. She's also on the managing board, management board of the World Economic Forum. Um, <laughs> so she was the person. She was the person who came out and said, like you know, she announced not only to Canada, but I would say to the world. The world should have been listening to what they did with the bank accounts of these people that they basically said we are we are freezing your bank account because you you had the temerity to donate money to an organization that was not remotely illegal until we decided it was and that is the definition of tyranny and it is Weirdly, I mean, like for anybody on the right, for anybody who is interested in kind of like liberal politics or right wing politics, this is also an attack on private property. For anybody on the left, it should be terrifying because it's an attack on just basic liberty. Um, the concept that from one day to the next, a bank, and it's not like banks are, should be the most trusted institutions or the most trusted organizations. And they are given the power to decide, you know, this person's a bit dodgy. We'll just freeze his money. And, I mean, there's no due process. There's no, you know, how do you get your money back? How do you reopen? How do you get your insurance um, account set up again? I mean, it, it's, it's a staggering amount of power with zero accountability and zero oversight. And that should be on the minds of everybody who is worried about government over overreach in the coming, I don't know, in the coming days. <laughs> She's in the WEF. Crystalline, what was her yeah. name again? Crystal Freeland. Crystal Freeland. She's a, she, she's a very interesting person that should definitely be, um, because she has lots of um, connections with the Ukraine conflict as well. Um, so, I mean, like, she's definitely somebody who's worth researching in more depth we did a little uh, video on her today and just saw that thing nick where she's going like yeah permanently we're keeping these powers permanently describing them as tools and stuff these are tools tools oh man yeah that's the video that we're putting out today i can't believe it i mean a lot of things you're saying well i suppose what's helpful about what you've done is you've just demonstrated the working out and you've like shown that there is it's plain that there is the conspiracy is not the right word. It's like a plan. It's like a plan being enacted. Yeah, I mean, I think that the use of the word conspiracy has been so tarnished um, over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years that it's, it's dangerous to use it. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a plan that is kind of like, um, that has many organisations involved and it's not... I don't think it's just one. It's not hatched. It's not like Spectre in James Bond. It's not kind of like, it's not, it's, it's something that has been openly done. There is a massive paper trail. They've stated their objectives. Um, and unfortunately, most people are unaware of it because this isn't being covered in the way it should be covered by, by our organs of journalism. And I wonder it, why know, that is. The fourth estate. It is curious, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what the ties are between the World Economic Forum and and the media, but as you've covered, I mean, like the the ties between the Gates Foundation and the media are well established, and you know they have donated, given grants to the tune of over three hundred million dollars over the last twenty years, and it's yeah, this is 
it's, you know, you are capturing every little step, every little element of kind of government and those kind of like the, the so-called estates that are supposed to, to represent us and to, or to, to protect us from tyranny have all been, um, what's the word, they've all been um, taken over, captured. Hollowed um, out. And have you, hollowed like, out, yeah. Is your um, book already out? It's out in um, in about three weeks. It's out in the middle of March. I think it's like March the seventeenth. Nick, that's I want to wrap up the interview, but that, that's that's mental. What you've just said, it's mental. It's mental. It's mental. Let's um. um can, can I can I say one thing? I mean, I don't want to go on. Yeah. Stay my welcome, but you're welcome. I mean, Continues. Thing, <laughs> so like the the financial thing in Canada. Um, I mean, the reason why this is so scary is that we are going through uh, a period of time where central banks around the world, which are not other institutions with huge amounts of power, with very limited accountability and oversight and zero democracy, democratic input, um, they are in the process of developing central bank digital currencies. Again, something most people are not really aware of. And these central bank digital currencies will give enormous extra powers to, to these central banks. They will basically, the way it seems... Is that um, like their own cryptocurrency, Nick? Is it like their own it's, cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like their own cryptocurrency. So it will be based on blockchain technologies. They say that this is necessary to compete against stable coins, um, like the one that Facebook was talking about developing. But basically, if you have these central bank digital currencies uh, set up, if they're rolled out, if we're all given accounts with these central banks, um, instead of having our bank accounts, you know, we, we will also have a central bank, we'll have a, an account with, with the central bank. And that will represent a possible threat to many of the banks in our economy. Because in the event of a financial crisis, most people will, um, through fear, we've seen how, how powerful fear is during the pandemic. If people start becoming afraid that maybe their bank is not that secure, they will move their money to the central bank. That means that the banks could collapse. Um, this is something certain economists have warned about. It's a very strange thing to be happening because central banks are supposed to be the regulators of the banks in the economy. And by setting up these central bank digital currencies, they are going in direct competition with the banks they regulate. So this would be like a new first. But most disconcertingly, I mean, like if you have these central bank digital currencies and they take away cash, and it's a really important element of this story, and I go into some detail in my book. I mean, cash is almost like the final frontier of freedom and anonymity that we have. And there's been a kind of like at least a decade long or, or, or even longer war on cash by many of the same organizations. Bill Gates is very much involved. Um, you've got lots of the biggest banks, you know, you've got Visa, you've got MasterCard. So, I mean, essentially, if we all are kind of like corralled into having these central bank digital currencies, which will function more or less like vouchers, what it means is that if you are a naughty citizen <laughs> and you start doing things that 
you shouldn't be doing and the government doesn't appreciate, then just as has happened in Canada, they can essentially deactivate your account. So they are taking away your freedom to transact. Um, so, I mean, like, this is this is why digital identities and this is why vaccine passports are so important because they take away our freedoms. They take away our freedom to move. They take away our freedom to transact. They take away our freedom of speech, the ability to do our freedom of association. And these are the kind of like, whatever we might think about the... Um, Western society and Western traditions, I would say that one of the best things, one of the one of the most important assets we have are these kind of basic freedoms, this idea of consent of the governed, the idea of a social contract um, where we are, um, where we consent to government on the basis of government representing us. And this is pretty unique around the world. And we are, I think, in serious danger of losing that. Yeah, it sounds like and it. And I think that also. I've like literally been sitting here thinking, oh, shit, I'm going to have to step things up. Like, it's like you can't muck around <laughs> for a while. Like, you know, it's like, you've got to wrap it up. You can't tell me any more things. I can't handle any more. I can't handle the truth. Remember that bit in a few good minutes. I just want to give a shout I just want to give one shout real. Well, go on, then. Where else are you going to shout out? <laughs> I want to give a shout out to the blog that I, I work for in Naked Capitalism that I write for on Naked a capitalism. twice basis. Wolf Naked Capitalism.com. We'll put it in it's your intro place. as well. Uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Too proven to be an unconventional guest, but providing extremely good content <laughs> and brilliant insight. And I think we can um, collaborate. Uh, please, God, we can uh, collaborate further. Okay, I appreciate that, Russell. Thanks for having You're me. Brilliant! On. Thanks for your great it's work. Been, Thanks for coming like on. I said it's been a it's been a pleasure and a privilege. You didn't seem that like, nervous once you got into it. You wouldn't shut up, would you? I tried to end the podcast. You refused. <laughs> <laughs> you flat out just said we're carrying on. Did another ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I got into the swing of things in the end. Certainly did. You you should be in that young leaders <laughs> program. They give you a country in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> nice one mate well thank you Russell speak to you soon thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin there with Nick Corbushley come and see me on tour go to russellbrand.com to get your tickets and in the meantime please have a listen to other episodes like the one with Matt Tybee why? I feel like they're on the same same sort of page side critiquing yeah. sort of globalism Glenn Greenwald why? same kind of same thing. side yeah, he does. He, he finds things out that are dangerous, right? Oh, I know. It's, it's bloody terrifying, isn't it? And keep checking out my YouTube channel for new videos. And thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>